My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. One of the common emails that comes in or phone calls or lines of communication that comes into me as pastor is something along this line. Pastor James, do you know anyone that has a house that they want to rent? Or Pastor James, do you know anybody that has a spare bedroom that they want to rent? Or Pastor James, do you know anybody that has access to an apartment? Now, all of those are prefaced with the word affordable, okay? And uh, those of us who live in Washington County, Hillsborough, we know that affordable housing is an oxymoron, right? Uh, we live in a housing crisis, a housing crunch. To actually find safe, affordable housing is almost impossible. And I mean, I feel for young folks that are getting started because it's just insurmountable to get into a house. Those of us who've been here for a while, we bought a long time ago. And so we can kind of stay in the stream of that as we buy and sell, but it's really difficult to find affordable housing. And it's not uncommon for people to cry out because we're a church to say, Hey, I'm moving into the area. I'm going to be going to school somewhere. I'm wondering if you know someone in your congregation who would have a room to rent or a place to stay, or my family's coming in. Oh, it's the constant cry. If I don't receive it, Annie Vandercoven receives it all the time we need a place to stay and it's tough and you know this if you look around there are more and more homeless uh, there are homeless camps that are growing up and it's you know it's one of those struggles that we have as a culture what do we do with this our county our city how do we actually handle this what do we do portland struggles with it i mean all up and down the i-5 corridor we struggle with this issue of how do we find places for people to live it's very difficult today but i have the answer in fact i kid you not if every one of us at sunrise did what I am going to talk about today, we could make a significant impact in housing. In fact, we have well over 2,000 family units at Sunrise Church. And if we each did this, it would change the dynamics of everything. Now, your property values wouldn't go down, so don't freak out, but your heart would enlarge. Now, before I go into that, I want to remind you where we are. We're in a series about living generously. Uh, we started this a couple of weeks ago. Last week, Emmy spoke about it. We talked about God's generosity, God's grace, how God has shown generosity to us. Because you and I, when we think about generosity or you hear a pastor talk about generosity, we equate it only to money. It's like, great, now we're going to take an offering. No, that's not what we're talking about, although we will take an offering later. Um, but, but generosity is more than money. In fact, it's so much more 
than money. And what we see and what we will see to the end of the year, it's like a diamond. As we turn it, the facets create different colors and shapes, and we get a little bit of a different perspective on what it means to be generous people. Generosity in all its facets. Now, generosity, really, biblically speaking, we could say it this way. It means living a radically generous life. So radical that we are deeply unselfish in every area of our life. I heard someone say it this way. Because you can be technically generous, but not radically generous. You can, you know, as the Pharisee we saw a couple weeks ago, gave 10% and fast and all that stuff. And that's technically generous. But we're talking not about being technically generous. We're talking about being radically generous. Because the bottom line is, God was radically generous to us. That God, when he saw our need, didn't wait for us. He moved into our neighborhood, as uh, it says in John chapter 1, verse 14. He moved into the neighborhood. He, he made a, a tent dwelling place like we have. And we moved in. He moved in among us. And he showed us his grace and truth. Long before we ever saw the need, God was radically generous to us in Jesus by giving us the best gift, his own son. Now, what does it look like to be radically generous in varying facets? Today, I want to talk about the issue of opening up our table. And it's going to relate to the opening statement I made, ultimately. But I want to talk about this from a passage of scripture, a story about the life of Jesus in Luke chapter 14. It's page 797 in your chair Bible, um, a couple flips in your smartphone app. But open up to Luke 14, and we're going to see this. It'll be on the screen as well. But Luke 14, there's a story of Jesus at a meal table. Now I'll give you the background while you're turning there, flipping there, opening your app. Here's what happens. Jesus is invited to the home of a prominent Pharisee. Now it's not an uncommon story to see Jesus eating with others. He was known for that. Jesus went to the table a lot. But it was a little odd that Jesus was at the home of a Pharisee. We see it a couple times early on in ministry. But the Pharisees were the religious elite, the ruling power. They ultimately conclude, along with the Sadducees, the other religious group, they conclude that Jesus has to die. And so he's sent to the cross. But early on in ministry, Jesus is invited over to a lot of homes. And so in this story, in Luke 14, Jesus is invited over to the home of a prominent Pharisee, a religious ruler. And he does a miracle which doesn't set well. Um, and he ends up telling a story. We see Jesus going to meals all the time in uh, Matthew. We see the story where Matthew is the tax collector. He begins to follow Jesus. And then he invites Jesus over to his house with all these tax collectors. But the Pharisees, they kind of look into the windows. They, they're their wallflowers. They don't want to go in because it was said that a tax collector was so unclean that you didn't even dare go into the home because no one would believe you that you didn't touch anything. Cause as soon as you touch something, you were spiritually, technically unclean. So the religious leaders ultimately separate from Jesus. But in this situation, this religious leader, this Pharisee has invited Jesus into his home for a meal. And Jesus uses this as an opportunity to speak about the meal table, to speak about radical hospitality, God's kind of hospitality. Okay. You there? All right. So here's what we're going to look at. Luke chapter 14, starting in verse seven. Now, when Jesus noticed that all 
who had come to the dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table. He gave them this advice. So I don't know who's here. I don't know how many are here, but more than just Jesus and the Pharisee. It's a whole group of people hanging out. And he noticed that people were jockeying for position. They want the best seat in the house, right? Okay, now let's think about this in our culture. Uh, Thanksgiving, all right? How many of you have a table that was so filled you had a kitty table? Raise your hand, a card table, right? Now, how many of you had to sit at the kitty table? Okay, kind of embarrassing, isn't it? Yeah, it's like, come on, mom, when do I grow up, right? I remember the day I finally moved from the kitty table to the real table. That's pretty awesome, right? I mean, that was, that was last year, actually. Um, and so the idea is that there are places at a table. Some of you have, anybody have a round kitchen table? It's, it's, when you've got a round table, it's kind of hard. I don't know how King Arthur figured it out, but somebody has to sit at the head. But a round table, it's not so obvious. How many of you have a longer table, like a rectangular table? That's ours. Okay, it's obvious where the head is, all right, one side or the other. In our family, the head is on the end. That's my seat, okay? And Jesus is saying here that we want to move up in position to this. So this is what he gives by way of advice. We want to sit next to the head. He says, when you're there, I know you want to sit in seats of honor. You're all jockeying for position at the head of the table. He gave them this advice. When you're invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. I'll explain that in a minute. Instead, what if, what if somebody who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? The host will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then you'll be embarrassed and you will take, have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. So this is how this works. Now in my family, I sit at the head of the table. My wife sits on my left there. And then the boys sit in a rotation order. Now this is how it works because we have certain chore duties at our house. Chicken duty is the hardest one. It's going out caring for chickens, which I believe are the dumbest creatures on the planet, even worse than cats. If you can imagine that. And, um, and so to feed the chickens, to water the chickens, to go get the eggs every day, smelly, it's kind of not the best job. If you have chicken duty that week at our house, you sit in the highest seat next to me, the right hand, the chicken hand, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, so you're there. Um, we, we, we got this a long time ago and my boys are old enough that they still haven't figured it out, but it's just one of those little things that they get this seat and they, they jockey for that position. If you're in that, you get to ride in the shotgun every day of the week and you get to choose what we do on Friday night, family night and the movie and the pizza or whatever. And so it's, it's a prominent seat in our house, a chicken seat. Okay. It's really good. So, uh, sounds kind of silly, but it works for us. And then the next week's duty and then on. And so there's some movement going on, but you want to sit in that seat. And so what Jesus is saying is that when you, when you go to a wedding feast or a banquet or a dinner table, a Thanksgiving meal, you want to sit in a seat close to the host or the hostess because now in his culture, that indicated not just your relationship to the host or hostess, but your importance to the host or hostess. Now take a look at this. This is a picture I took in Jerusalem, uh, there on Mount Zion at the Jerusalem University College. My wife and I, we did a two week life of Christ class. This is the table that they would have sat at or like this. At the time of Jesus, low to the ground, they would have sat on cushions or reclined. And for Westerners to recline and eat, that's kind of weird. So we just sat crisscross applesauce kind of thing there. And so we sat there. And uh, my wife, Mary Beth, here. And so we sat at this table. But here's the bigger picture of the whole room. And so this right here is the whole feast. So this would represent like a wedding feast, a big important feast. This would have been very expensive in that day. If you were to throw this kind of a meal, it was an important event. Okay. But you notice 
notice the table arrangements. This is called a triclinium. This was something in ancient uh, Greece and ancient Rome and the culture at the time of Jesus was very popular. Whether it was large or small, whether you had 50 people or five people, your table was set up three different tables in an order. And there's a reason behind that because the host, the person who is putting on the meal sits right here, not in this lady's seat. She would be the guest of honor, but in her husband's seat, who's attempting to lie down and eat his grapes and soup from the side messy. Okay. So this is where the host would sit with on the right, the guest of honor, the most important person. And then everybody else is seated according to their relationship to the host and their importance to the host. And you feel sorry for these people here. They don't even get a seat. They have to add to the end. This is the kitty part of the table, right? And you're hoping there's turkey left over by the time it gets down there, right? Okay, so this is what was going on. Now, what Jesus is talking about, though, is more and it's bigger than a table. This is about the natural propensity in your heart and my heart to want to jockey for position, to be close to certain people, to be in a relationship with certain others so that we then feel good about ourselves. And so Jesus uses a wedding feast or something quite like this, a triclinium to illustrate this. Now, when you study this, it actually, a side note, brings new understanding into the, the Last Supper where Jesus had 12 and he was there. And so he's the host and right next to him on one side, John's on one side. And Judas is on the other. Okay, so Judas was a high prominent member of the disciples. Obviously, you know, he was stealing and, uh, you know, he would betray Jesus. But there's a conversation in the upper room that's hidden or missed if you don't understand a triclinium. And so this is what would happen in the upper room. This is what would happen at a feast. Jesus at a Pharisee's house. Jesus says, if you're going to a wedding feast, a big, big, big feast, it's our natural desire to take the most important seat. But what happens if you do that is you might have sat in the wrong seat and now you're humiliated. Okay. So then Jesus goes on and he says this in the text. Instead, I have a different plan for you. Take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees you, he will come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. This is called psychological warfare. Okay. This is great. It's really cool though. It's really good. Then you will be honored in front of all the other guests. I mean, this is practical, right? Jesus says, okay, I know in our heart we want to sit in the most important seat. But you risk everything by doing that. So the better plan is you take the lowest position, the position of a servant. And then if the host sees you and you're esteemed or honored in the host's eyes, he will move you up. And by doing so, you will be elevated by the host to a more prominent place. Okay? kind of a weird story, right? It's a weird thing, but Jesus culminates it with this statement. He says, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. We saw that a couple weeks ago. This is the statement of Jesus that if you really truly want to be great in my kingdom, you have to be the servant of all. If you want to be the first, you have to strive to be the last because God is the one who has set and arranged everything and he will see your humility. And because of your humility, he will elevate you to a place of prominence. 
Now, what Jesus just said here flies in the face of our culture. It's absolutely contradictory to everything we see in the world today. If you were to go to Hollywood, if you go to New York, if you were to go to any place that's important in any kind of structure, any kind of social setting, everybody says your job is to get to the front of the line because you want to make sure you get in and you want to make sure you get a good seat and you want to make sure you get close to the important people in the room. You see, it's almost like, and I'll change the illustration from a table to a ladder. It's almost as if you and I somehow instinctively know wrongly, but we instinctively know that we are on a rung of the ladder. And the only way to make it in the world, the only way to feel good about ourselves, the only way to improve ourselves and our status and our position, the only way to get close to the people we want to be close to is to move up the ladder, right? And so we spend our whole lives climbing a rung and moving up to the next rung of the ladder. You and I will do whatever it takes to move up. We do this at work, right? We do this at school. We do this in our social settings. We do this in, in you know, your, your neighborhood association or whatever it might be. We want to be in a higher place. So we work ourselves to the place where people will look at us and then want to be where we are. But the problem is it's like a moving sidewalk. It's never ending. The more you move up the ladder to the next rung and the next rung, you will always see people above you that have more. And the propensity of our heart is to want to spend time with those people so that we get something back. We feel good about ourselves. But see, Jesus changes this totally inverts the equation. He, he says, instead of wanting to move up the ladder, I have a better plan for you. Why don't you move down the ladder? Nobody in the world wants to move down the ladder. We want to hang out with the more rich and the more personal, the more powerful. You know, we want to be with those people that have things, right? Jesus says, if you want to be my follower, though, you got to be like me. I moved down the ladder. In fact, he did. I mean, think of it. He's up at this table in heaven. He's in this feast. He's in this perfect place. Father, son, and spirit, the triune in God. He's there and he stepped out of heaven and came down onto this earth. He took on our humanity, took on our flesh. And by doing so, he humbled himself, the Bible says. He, he put himself in the position of a servant or a slave so that we could discover God. We could see God. We could see God in the flesh and then be brought into a relationship with God through him. So Jesus set the example. He stepped down the ladder. In fact, Jesus got off the ladder. And at the bottom of the ladder, you'll discover a whole bunch of people that have been kicked off the ladder. There's a whole group of people, and this is who Jesus hangs out with. In his stories, throughout the Gospels, the stories of Jesus, you'll discover that Jesus hangs out with the, what would be the worst of the worst in that spiritual religious culture. The prostitutes, the tax collectors, the sinners, the lame, the blind, those that were demon-possessed, you know, those that had been lep- you know, lepers and now they're healed. Those are the unclean of the world. And Jesus came down. And he hung out with those people. And he not just hung out with them, he went to a table with them. Now, in the Middle East at that time, still to some degree today, but in ancient uh, times, it was really important to understand who you would eat with because that signified your connection with people. And you would eat your way up the ladder, basically. You would dine your way up the ladder. And what Jesus did was he welcomed anybody and everybody to his table. In fact, there's a statement in Luke 
15, where the religious people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're really disgusted with Jesus by this point, by who he's hanging out with. And he's, they say it this way about Jesus. They're mumbling or murmuring or complaining because he's hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes and lost people and all kinds of just the basic normal people. And it says, this man receives sinners. That's like the worst thing they could say. This guy, and it, it implies this, this guy sets a table and invites the worst people to his table. First of all, that's offensive to God in their eyes. And it's, he's never going to work his way up the ladder if he hangs out with these people, right? But see, that's what our world tells us. That's what religion tells us. That's what our heart tells us. I want to move up the ladder so I can feel more important. And Jesus says, I have a different plan. I want you to humble yourself. I want you to move down the ladder. And I want you to spend time with people that will never make it up the ladder. In fact, just get off the ladder and you'll discover there's a whole group of people that have given up on all that. And that's who Jesus hung out with. And that's who he invites us to hang out with. Biblical hospitality, generous hospitality, is to set a table for people that no one else will invite. Now, that's not going to make you popular at school. It's not going to make you popular at work. Even our work system, we talk about climbing the ladder of success. And if it means that we climb over people or around people, or we in our sinful nature will even push people off the ladder to get over top of them, to get to a higher spot. Because we think if we reach the top of the ladder... We've won, right? And I like the old story. It's old, but it's true. What if you discover that you've climbed the ladder and you've reached the top and it was leaning against the wrong wall? What if in the midst of all of our desire for greatness, we actually lost greatness in God's eyes? And so Jesus says, I have a different plan for you. When you set a feast or you go to a place like this, don't sit in the great spot. Sit in the worst spot. Because that's where God sat. That's where Jesus himself sat. Now, as we work our way through the story, we discover a couple things about this. We discover that um, there's this desire for us. And C.S. Lewis does a really good job of this. He talks about this. It's, it's in an essay called The Inner Ring. It's, you can find it in The Way to Glory. But um, he says that all of us have an inner ring. Now, we create this, a circle of friends, okay? We all have a table that we create. Now, not only do we invite certain people to the table, we get a sick satisfaction by keeping certain people away from our table. That's humanity. That's what we do. We, we create a table. We get important people, or as we deem them important, to the table, popular people, influential people to the table, but we work hard to keep other people away from our table. That's called the inner ring. And everybody does this. We do it in church. We do it in our heart. We want to hang out with certain people. We don't want to hang out with others, right? We would love to spend time at that person's house. We'd probably make up an excuse and lie to not go to that person's house, right? We would love to eat with this person. We really don't want to eat with that person. We'd love to hang out with this group of people. We don't want to be seen with these people. That's called the inner ring. And we all have it. It's a heart issue. It's a sin issue. It's something that comes from the pit of hell, really. It's this idea that we will be more. You see, in the old days, in antiquity, specifically at the time of Jesus, everything worked off this system called a patronage system. In fact, take a look at this next text and it'll explain it. 
Then he turned to the host. When you put on a luncheon or banquet, he said, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors. Anybody invite your friends, brother, relative, rich neighbor to Thanksgiving? Okay. Uh, you probably don't know who your rich neighbors are because even if they have a big car, they're in debt. Okay. All right. They don't own anything. The bank owns everything. All right. They are so far in debt. Okay. Okay. But, but we all invited family to Thanksgiving, right? No, that's okay. Jesus is not saying never invite your mother-in-law men. He didn't say that. Okay. Um, what he's saying is if you only invite the people you love, you're going to get a reward back from that and you're done. He says, don't just invite your friends, brothers, relatives, rich neighbors, for they will invite you back and that'll be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind. Then at the resurrection, the righteous God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. Now, see, this patronage system meant you would invite your brother. You would invite your friend. You would invite your rich neighbor. Because the patronage system said that if you wanted to move or get anything done, actually, in the culture, you had to befriend certain other people. More wealthy more influential, more popular, more political, whatever it might be. And so here's how it'd work. You would work your way to get invited to that party, to that dinner. And at that dinner, you would work your way up the table and you would befriend a person more important than you. Maybe just one rung up the ladder, but definitely you wouldn't spend time with people down the ladder because you don't want to move down, right? You want to move up. So you, you know, push those away. You move up to people. And what your hope and desire is that by going to that party, they will invite you to their party because they're probably not the top person at their party, right? Because they've invited some more important people to their party and you get to that party, you socialize your way up the chain is what Jesus is saying and what antiquity told us to do. That if you ever want to get anything done, you have to work your way up the influence ladder, the importance ladder, the wealth ladder, the value ladder. And that's how it worked back then. And my friends, that's how it works today. And Jesus says, but that system is broken. It's bankrupt. So when you throw a party, don't do it with the intent to work up. Do it with the intent to work down. Now, that might sound humiliating, depending on who you're inviting. But what it's basically saying is don't consider yourself on a journey to move up. Get off the ladder and invite everybody else. Invite the lame, invite the broken, invite the hurting. Uh, Today it'd be invite the people that nobody else wants to invite, the people that don't get invited to a party. Go after those people and throw a party for them because that is reminiscent of God's party. That's reminiscent of God's table. Now, the struggle that you and I face is we want to hang out with the ladder up, the rung up, right? But you know what happens when we do that? If you were today would be invited to hang out with a lot of wealthier people in Washington County or in Portland, and you were to start spending time with them, you know what you do? You would begin to see, you would begin to experience things that cost a whole lot more. And you would start to want those things and desire those things. And you would end up on a trek that you'll never, ever get to the end of. If, on the other hand, you decide to move down the ladder, to get off the ladder, to invite the hurting and the broken, the lame and the poor and the blind and everybody else, right? You know what you discover? Man, you have a lot. You already have a lot. So, I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to chide anybody in a bad way. But if you're thinking about moving up today in your housing, if you're thinking about buying a bigger place and having more, um, I know that's in our heart. I get all that. But if you wanted to just put everything in check, would you go to Rwanda for a week? And would you hang out and live in the family of the child you're sponsoring? Would you go do that? Because my wife and I have been 
in her home. We've been in Rachel's home. I've been, she's in a different place now. And it's just a, you know, 10 by 10 mud dung house with a simple thatched roof. One big room. And everybody sleeps there on the floor and everybody lives there a couple benches and that's life to them. There's no real door. It's just a cloth that hangs down, a couple windows. It's not secure. And just live there and sleep on a dirt floor. That would change everything for you, my friends. Because you'd come back and you'd realize, whoa, I'm already rich. I'm already the rich of the world. I'm already the, the, the famous people of the world. I'm, I already have so much. Now, I'm not saying that to guilt you. I'm just saying sometimes we need a dose of perspective. But if you're always hanging out with people who have more, your perspective is more. But instead, if you spend time with people who have less, your perspective is you already have more. You already have a lot. You are already blessed with so much. And so the patronage system works if if you want to go that route. If you want to climb the ladder, go for it. You'll do that. You will get to the end of it. You will discover it's bankrupt. But you could find joy and true joy if you become a generously hospitable person. Move down, invite people up, and hang out and have a party with them. Now, Jesus uses this as a way to illustrate the desire of our heart. And he says, but in my kingdom, it's going to be different. It's going to be upside down. It's going to be backwards. Because if you really want to be the rich of the world, become poor. Could anybody argue that Jesus was the richest? And he became poor for our sakes, it says. I mean, literally poor for us. Jesus was homeless for us. Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head. The Bible says that Jesus was, you know, in our sense, nothing. He had nothing. And he didn't even... He didn't even, you know, create a body that everybody would go, wow, look at that. That's Fabio or that's Brad Pitt or that's whoever. You know what I mean? Sorry. I saw a story on Fabio the other day. I thought I didn't even know he's still alive and he still looks good and his hair is still long. Um, you know, but, but it's like we, you know, Jesus just, he, he made himself of no reputation. It says in the King James and Philippians too, he lost it all for us. The glory of heaven. He stepped out of that for us. He stepped down so that we could be invited up. And that's what he says for you and for me, my friends. This is the new path. This is the new way. Jesus was in the ultimate inner ring of heaven. And he stepped out of that to invite us into his party. Now, I want to give you some practical tips on this. Just a couple ideas. Really simple. It's this. Um, be hospitable. Now, hospitality in the Bible has a lot of facets. You see this in stories of Abraham inviting people. Job illustrates this. He says, I've never turned away a stranger, but I've opened my doors to everybody. That's cool, right? Could we say that? I never turned away a stranger. In that culture, you walk into a town, into this little square or the gate it was, and you know, you'd ask for a place or somebody go, oh, you're here, you're a guest, a visitor. You invite people into the family, into the home. Job did this. Uh, we're told this in Romans. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he says, it's Always be eager to practice hospitality. This is how this works. Be eager, be excited to welcome someone into your home, to your table, into your life. All right. Uh, We see this. The writer of Hebrews says, don't forget to show hospitality to strangers for some who have done this have entertained angels without realizing it. Now, this is probably hearkening back to Abraham's story where Abraham invites guests into his tent, throws a meal for them, a party, and it ends up being angels and God himself. Okay. But who knows? Maybe it could be for our age, even that we invite people 
into our homes. We invite people out to meals. We, we do this and then, you know, they're actually angels in disguise. I know you could do this. Well, Peter says it this way. He says, cheerfully share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay. Now, how do you practically do this? Well, this is the cool thing. The word itself gives us the answer. In the New Testament, the original language Greek, the word is philoxenia. It's mean like a brotherly love, phileo, or Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It means a, a love, a deep love for people that are different from you. And it literally is people that are strange. Okay? Now, don't look at other people because they're looking at you. You're the strange person. What I mean by that is I'm not talking about freaky, weird people that are different. It means loving strangers, someone who is socially strange, not weird, just different, Um, racially strange, economically strange. Some, some way they're different from you. They're not in your normal inner ring. They don't sit at your table or you don't sit at that table. The love of strangers is really what hospitality means. So in a true sense, you can't be hospitable to your friends because you already know them. You can only be hospitable to people you don't know or people that are strange, people that are different. And it means in this, in the, you know, the whole vernacular to let a stranger sit at one's table, to offer a bed to a stranger or to let a stranger enter one's home, to truly show hospitality, biblical hospitality, generous hospitality would be to invite someone into your life that you don't know. Now that's a risk. I understand that. I'm not talking about emptying a homeless camp and moving into your house. I'm not talking about that. Okay. But maybe you build a friendship with a homeless person and you realize that the situation of their life, they just got bumped out of the system. And the best thing for you would be to give them a room. I mean, you think of it this way. You know, we have big homes here in America. We have, we have huge homes. And then our kids grow up and move out. Praise Jesus. That's exciting. No, sorry. Um, they move out. They go to college, whatever. And maybe they move back. Who knows? Um, it's like back. Um, you know, and you've got extra rooms, right? We all do. This is America, right? Now, if you live on a one-bedroom apartment, you don't. But, but you can even be hospitable. But think about this. You've taken that room and you've emptied the contents out and you've made a sewing room. You've made a a craft room. You've made a hobby room. You've made an exercise room. You know, you've made a man cave. You've done something with the room, right? What would it look like if you evaluated your home today when you went back to it and you realized the open spaces you have and you said, let's go get that bed and let's put it back in and let's create a room. Let's create a space. You look at your table and you realize, man, we put the leaf and we have eight seats here and there's only two of us. Why is our table empty? Let's make a plan every week to invite people to our table. Let's throw a feast every week and let's invite them to it. Make it a potluck if you don't have the means to throw a feast. Everybody brings something, right? And you hang out and you play games. You get to know people. That's hospitality. Just inviting someone into your life who's different. You know, in school, it's like going to the lunchroom and finding someone who sits at the table that nobody wants to sit at. And you sit at that table or you invite someone to your table. That's hospitality. Figuring out a way to love people who are different. That's how Jesus did it. Because we were strange. We were different. And he loved us. Biblical hospitality is loving people that are far from you. And Jesus did a great job of that. And I believe he can do that in our hearts. If we follow him, 
He'll give us the love. He'll give us the wisdom to do that and the opportunities. Now, here are some practical, like just dead on practical examples right here. Number one, generous hospitality means sharing your God-given resources with someone who does not have these resources. Um, we're, we're really generous as a church. We, you know, given to a Cuba fund for pastors and missionaries and training there, given to Rwanda, Burundian students who've given to a hospital there. We've done this. We give to our mercy fund every week. Those are dollars that come in specifically, uh, Heather Brown, uh, administrates those and then when people call in from the church or the community we serve people and we give that away that that's a hallmark of our church we love to do that so keep doing that um rwanda you know uganda wells opportunities like that you guys gave freely three years ago for a well fifteen thousand dollars crawford's going to be out there twelve thousand dollars for a well he's over halfway there wouldn't it be awesome if by the weekend it's all taken care of you don't know these people you may never see these people but it's a resource water is a very necessary resource resource provide needs for people some of you have the means to go buy a home and open it up as a a home for people Uh, men or women a lot of recovery opportunities are out there some of you have a lot maybe you need to keep your home and go move into a small place and open that up for people talk about ministry talk about life when you open up your life to people because of your resources the second opportunity would be you know treating strangers as family and bringing them into your home for a meal now, you know, you have to work and weigh your, your, you know, your comfortability on some of this stuff and your safety. I get all this, but I love to take our homeless friends out to lunch, take them to Carl, Carl's Jr. or Panera or somewhere and just sit down for an hour, hear their story and just buy them a meal. You get to engage with someone. You get to know them on a deeper level. Invite someone to church afterwards. Just grab someone and take them to church. Make it a plan. Maybe this could be your plan for 18 would be every Sunday we're going to have an extra dose of whatever in our refrigerator, our stove, you know, our oven. It's going to be ready to go. Or we're going to save money and every we're going to take another family out, someone we don't know, another person. Man, that would be awesome for us to do that. Reach out to people that are different. Or number three, generous hospitality means welcoming people into your home and sharing your very life with them. That seems like a risk, but I'll tell you, my my family and I have done this for years. And it's amazing. Years ago, my wife and I were just married. We invited a young man who went to Pacific University to come and live with us. And he wasn't a follower of Christ, but he, we had a spare bedroom. And he lived in the spare bedroom while he was going through the PA program there. And uh, he came by a friend, John Geetson, who, you know, vetted him for us. And we did that. It was great. We had a gal, Kelly, live with us for a season. Um, we had a gal, Kimberly, live with us for a while. You know, just young people that need a place to live. You know, they're trying to make it. They're in school or they're trying to break out on their own. They need to move out of mom and dad's house. And they don't quite have the ability to move somewhere. This is awesome. This is exciting to do this. You get to know people. What a young man, Jonathan, move in with us. And the truth is his stuff lived with us far more than he did. He was just a young guy and he was in and out. But his stuff was there for like a year. You know, but that's okay. He was in and out. Then we had Kaylee move in with us. Great young lady. Got to know her and developed a dear friendship with her. She sat at our tables. She hung out with us. We did things together. In the last two years, we've had a gal named Monique move in with us. And we just, you know, get to know people and we open up our very lives to people. And it's not just for their benefit. I'm telling you, it's for our benefit. We are changed when we do that. Our family loves the people that we invite into our family because it's not just about a room. It's not about making money. That's for sure. It's about opening up a space. We have a spare room. In our house, and we give it away to people. Now, do that. Find a way to open up a part of your heart to someone. Quit trying to get on their space. You create space. Quit trying to move up the ladder. 
get off the ladder and come on down and hang out with the people who don't have much. You'll discover how Jesus lived and how Jesus moved. Now, Jesus concludes this, and I won't share that, but he, he finishes it by going to the last part of this teaching. And he talks about the ultimate table. He talks about the future table. He talks about it from a prophetic sense. And he says, you know, one day there's going to be a big feast, a big wedding feast. The Bible calls it the wedding feast of the Lamb, Jesus. That's Jesus, the bride of Christ. That's us. And we're going to celebrate in heaven. We're going to be at this massive table. We're going to be there. And, and in the story that Jesus tells, he says, you know, he sent on invitations. And the rich and popular people, they didn't want to come. They were busy. They had all kinds of excuses why they couldn't come. Ridiculous, foolish excuses. They missed out. They they had other pursuits. And so Jesus in the story says, go out and find other people, the lame, the blind, the broken, the hurting in our context, the homeless, the people that are different, different race, a different economic standard from us, different social group. People are just different from us and invite them to the table. And then there were still seats left. And he says, go out into the highways and byways and compel them to come in. Now, what Jesus is talking about is his invitation for you and for me to respond to this gospel message. That Jesus has a table. And that is the, the heavenly table, the eternal table. This is this big place, this big house that Jesus has. a big, big house. With lots and lots of room, you know. And so it's a big place, right? It's this big place and Jesus wants his house full. He wants his table full. And this is what the Bible says, that there is a seat with your name on it. There is an engraved invitation right there for you. And somebody has brought you even today to invite you to the table. And the Bible says when you receive that invitation and when you come to that table and you sit down, there's a party thrown in heaven. There's a banner over the table with your name on it. And you are now in the family of God. And my friends, for those of us who are inviters, that means the world to us. We live for inviting people to the table. And when they take their seat, we celebrate too, just with all the angels and God himself. Because that's what this life is all about, my friends. It's about getting off this treadmill of more and more and more, giving our very lives away for other people and discovering that that's what God did for us. And so would you invite someone to your table, to your heart this week? I don't want to close without this invitation. Some of you have been coming for a while and you've been on the outside and you're grabbing some snacks from the table, but you're not seated yet. You're enjoying some dessert. That's great. But there's a seat with your name on it. Would you sit down in that today? Would you come into Jesus family and sit at his table? He's inviting you. He's used us to go out on the highways and byways and invite you, compel you to come in. But all you need to do is, is believe it. You need, the Bible says you need to believe that Jesus, he lives, he lived, he died, he lives again. He died for your sins. You need to receive the message. You need to trust in it for yourself that it's true and you receive that and you accept it. It's yours and you become a child of God. And then you're seated at the table and we all throw a party because we have been living for this. We've been preparing this place bigger than that. Jesus has been preparing a place for you. And when, when he's got it all done, he's going to come back for us. And so I'm telling you, my friends, this is why we exist as a church, to have you come to the table. And, and for the rest of us, man, don't ever give up inviting. Don't ever give up the hopes that somebody else will sit down at the table. And in a practical way, do it this week by inviting them to your table, into your heart. 
Let's pray. Father, the message that Jesus has explained is more than about food. It's about life. It's about salvation. It's about eternal relationship. And God, I pray for those that are here that have yet to say yes, that they would say yes, even now in this prayer and the song to come, that they would respond in just this invitation and they would say, Jesus, I want to sit at your table. I confess my sins to you, my brokenness, my separation, and I receive your invitation and I come and sit with you at the table of life. Bible says if you do that you respond you are a child a son or daughter of God and you are now at this banquet table and you are going to feast from God's own provision for you and then you're going to be sent out on a mission to get other people at the table that's why we exist that's why Jesus tarries because more seats need to be filled up father for the rest of us I pray that we would never give up the invitation never give up the hope that one more person would sit down You tell us that one day the call will be done. You'll come back. The house will be ready and we'll live with you forever. But but God, there's still more seeds moving us to open up our very lives to people, our homes, our hearts, our tables to people. May we be the solution to the housing crisis in Washington County. May the church be the answer. We pray in your name. Amen.